Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 173, Eusebius of Caesarea. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to try to cover the life and works of a very important 3rd and 4th century Christian. Eusebius of Caesarea was born around 260, probably in the town of Caesarea, which is in Palestine. Sometime when he was young, he became a disciple of a very interesting man named Pamphilus. Pamphilus was head of the Christian school there, which had been founded decades before by Origen, after Origen had moved away from Alexandria, Egypt. And Pamphilus was a huge fan of Origen's work, although he was born too late to have ever met him. Pamphilus had been a student of a teacher named Pierius, who was so enthusiastic about Origen that Jerome later nicknamed him Origen Jr. Like Origen, Pamphilus ended up living in Caesarea, where he tried to preserve Origen's legacy by having copies made of all of Origen's surviving works. That would be a Herculean task, of course. This expanded version of Origen's library lasted right up to the Islamic conquest of the area in the 600s. But Pamphilus's career was cut short. Arrested in 307, the Romans both tortured him and forced him to labor in the mines. He was beheaded by the Romans in 310. His disciple Eusebius finished a work which Pamphilus had begun called Defense of Origen, which answered several common complaints against Origen's theology. He had both fans and detractors, and both, I think, for some good reasons. Eusebius also honored his murdered master by calling himself, in Greek, Eusebios ha Pamphiliou, that is, Pamphilius's Eusebius, as in his son. He also honored Pamphilus by writing his autobiography, which is unfortunately lost to the ravages of time, and he also honored his master's martyrdom by describing it in a book called Martyrs of Palestine. Around this time, Eusebius himself had to run for his life to escape the Roman persecution of Christians, and he ended up doing some time in Roman prisons. But the persecutions ended, and a few years after his master's death, Eusebius was back in Caesarea, head of the Christian school there, and also appointed to be its bishop. Eusebius is, of course, most famous for his amazing history of Christianity from the time of Christ up till Constantine. This is a strange but invaluable book, and its most notable feature is Eusebius's habit of inserting whole primary source documents into it. He's not the best historian, he's not the most thorough necessarily, but he's that antiquarian who always has this one interesting document that he's eager to wave in your face, and we're glad to have that document nowadays. This work is so thorough that following historians in the 5th century did not try to replace Eusebius's history but rather they just tried to supplement it. Even a 20th century collection of ancient documents salutes Eusebius. This new collection calls itself the New Eusebius. But Eusebius was far more than a historian. It's just that the Catholic tradition has chosen to remember him as a historian. In his valuable book, The Unity of Christ, Dr. Christopher Beeley describes Eusebius as the most influential church leader of the 4th century and the most accomplished Christian scholar of his generation, a great originist himself, and the most prolific extant writer of any kind from this period. He even goes on to say that Eusebius is one of the major influences on the development of mainstream Orthodox Christology in the remainder of the patristic centuries. These are some big claims, but I don't think they're exaggerated. His works, other than his big history, have been very neglected, and one major work, Ecclesiastical Theology, has never even been translated into English. He wrote three very thorough, indeed massive, books of apologetics. Preparation for the Gospel, Proof of the Gospel, and a book called Theophany. Towards the end of his life, he wrote a long book denouncing the theology of Marcellus of Ancyra. And when he died, he was still working on a life of Constantine. He had become kind of obsessed with Constantine. We also have a couple of speeches of his, which are wrapped together and called Praises of Constantine or In Praise of Constantine. I'll present part of one of those to you later. But the first thing we have to ask is, 
Why did tradition choose to remember him primarily as a historian when that was just one aspect of his work? When the Trinity's podcast returns, we'll find out why. Mainstream Catholic Christianity could not overlook Eusebius' church history. But why do they want to forget his theology? The reason is that he got himself on the wrong side of the controversy over Arius. Without rehashing that whole controversy here, briefly, sometime in the early 320s, a dispute broke out in Alexandria, Egypt, between its bishop, Alexander, and a man named Arius, who served as a presbyter under him. He functioned as a pastor and seemingly as a very popular preacher. Alexander was already embattled for a couple of different reasons in his position, and Arius's language in distinguishing between God and his son was unusual and was considered extreme. If you want to look more into what this dispute was about, you can check out episodes 29 through 31 of the Trinity's podcast. In any case, the first instinct of some bishops was to jump to the defense of Arius. They didn't think that his distinction between God and his son was necessarily too extreme. So not this Eusebius, but another very influential Eusebius, Eusebius of Nicomedia, engaged in a letter-writing campaign in defense of Arius because Arius had appealed to him for help. Famously, the council at Nicaea in 325 was assembled together in large part to deal with this dispute about Arius's Christology. But here's an interesting fact that a lot of people don't know. In 1905, they discovered a document in the Syriac language, and after some initial hesitation and dispute, most scholars now accept that this is a genuine document, and it tells us about a meeting, a synod, at Antioch in 325, just a few months earlier than the famous meeting at Nicaea that same year. And this earlier meeting had also tried to deal with the issue of Arius. We don't know much about the meeting. It may be that it was convened for some routine purpose, like choosing a new bishop, and then this matter of Arius was added onto the agenda by somebody who was concerned about that. In any case, this Syriac document is a statement, it's a letter from that council. And it kind of does what Nicaea is trying to do. That is, try to adopt language which is sufficient to exclude Arius, but which can still be signed on to by people with some very different theologies. Their confession is as follows. To believe in one God, Father Almighty, incomprehensible, immutable, and unchangeable, providential ruler and guide of the universe, just, good, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things in them, Lord of the law and of the prophets and of the new covenant, And, in one Lord, Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, begotten not from that which is not, but from the Father, not as made, but as properly an offspring, but begotten in an ineffable, indescribable manner, because only the Father who begot the Son, and the Son who was begotten, know, for no one knows the Father but the Son, nor the Son but the Father, who exists everlastingly, and did not at one time not exist. For we have learned from the Holy Scriptures that He alone is the sole image, not, plainly, as if he might have remained unbegotten from the Father, nor by adoption, for it is impious and blasphemous to say this, but the Scriptures described him as validly and truly begotten as Son, so that we believe him to be immutable and unchangeable, and that he was not begotten, and did not come to be by volition or by adoption, so as to appear to be from that which is not, but as befits him to be begotten. Not a thing which is not lawful to think, according to likeness or nature or commixture with any of the things which came to be through him, but in a way which passes all understanding or conception or reasoning, we confess him to have been begotten of the unbegotten Father, God the Word, true light, righteousness, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior of all. For he is the image, not of the will or of anything else, but of his Father's very substance, hypostasis. This Son, God the Word, having been born in flesh from Mary, the mother of God, and made incarnate, having suffered and died, 
rose again from the dead, and was taken up to heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Majesty Most High, and is coming to judge the living and the dead. Furthermore, as in our Savior, the Holy Scriptures teach us to believe also in one Spirit, one Catholic Church, the resurrection of the dead, and a judgment of requital according to whether a man has done well or badly in the flesh. And we anathematize those who say or think or preach that the Son of God is a creature, or has come into being, or has been made, and is not truly begotten, or that there was when he was not. For we believe that he was, and is, and that he is light. Furthermore, we anathematize those who suppose that he is immutable by his own act of will, just as those who derive his birth from that which is not, and deny that he is immutable in the way the Father is. For just as our Savior is the image of the Father in all things, so in this respect particularly, he has been proclaimed the Father's image. There's a lot that can be said about this document. I mean, one obvious point is it's not as short and pithy as the slightly later Nicene Creed. It's kind of a tangled mess. And it's not clear that pressing on this biblical statement that Jesus is the image of God can really do the work that they're claiming. If he's the image of God in a unique sense, does it really follow from that, that he's eternally generated? And even that he's like the Father, in their view, in being immutable and unchangeable? Why couldn't a, quote, mere man be a unique image of God? Again, why assume that a proper or real offspring has to have this sort of origin? Says who? So they are pressing some contentious speculations here. And I believe this is the first known creed to anathematize those who disagree. To anathematize is to officially curse. We've become accustomed to this language in creeds now, thanks to the official products of the ecumenical councils. But think about it. This is a good thing? A good, helpful development? Would you think it was a good and helpful development if the radical Calvinist in your neighborhood anathematized the Arminians? How about if the open theists anathematized the Molinists? How about if the social Trinitarians anathematized the Latin Trinitarians? This is a degradation of what could have been a reasonable argument and discussion, I think. Right, we don't just disagree we curse you. But in any case, the main thing is that it accepts the harsh critique of Arius and the interpretation of Arius that was accepted by people later on like Marcellus and Athanasius. That's why they denounced that there was a time when the sun was not. Not clear if Arius really said that. This idea that he's true sun, as if Arius would deny that. That he's not made it's interesting also that they insist on the immutability, the unchangeability of the Son. I mean, on the face of it, Jesus changed plenty. He grew up, for instance. Isn't Jesus the Son? Maybe not. And they also denounce the old originist theme that eternal generation happens by the Father's will. They say that that's wrong. Of course, it lacks the famous claim that Father and Son are one usia. The closest it comes is saying that the Word is the image, like a copy of the being or the reality, the hypostasis of the Father. That's to say that they're alike. There's a lot more we could say in trying to analyze the theology of the document, but for the purposes of this episode, this is the point. After the confession that I just read, the letter goes on to say that all of the bishops accepted this statement. They all, I guess, voted to ratify it, except for three of them. Theodotus from Laodicea, Narcissus of Neronius, and Eusebius of Caesarea in Palestine. And then it harshly says that they were proved to have the same views as Arius. And it calls them obtuse, and it seems to excommunicate them. So clearly, Eusebius was in trouble. I don't know that he ever actually did lose his position as bishop, but at least provisionally, he was in trouble because he had been excommunicated, which would imply being deposed also, by this meeting of his fellow bishops. 
This explains a lot about his behavior a few months later at Nicaea. You see, we've always had this letter, which I mentioned in a previous episode, written by Eusebius to the people back home, which was written shortly after the Council of Nicaea. He realizes that they're going to be concerned when they find out that he's signed on to this document, and so he wants to tell them what happened, kind of give his spin on it, and explain why he thought it made sense to sign. He says basically that at the start of the council, he presented his own statement of faith. Now, why would he do that? He doesn't tell you in this letter. Why would the council, at least the part that dealt with Arius, why would that start off by having Eusebius present Eusebius's statement of faith? And what he presented was the traditional confession that they used for catechizing and baptizing in Caesarea. He says in his letter that it's this. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, the maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, God from God, light from light, life from life, only begotten Son, firstborn of all creation, before all the ages begotten from the Father, by whom also all things were made, who for our salvation was incarnate and lived among men and suffered and rose again the third day and ascended to the Father, and will come again in glory to judge living and dead. And we believe also in one Holy Spirit. So the statement's very traditional. It's interesting in saying one, 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 one God, one Lord, one Spirit. It's like the New Testament in that way. You'll have noticed that he doesn't say true God from true God, but only God from God. And he used the biblical phrase that Christ is firstborn of creation. Eusebius wants to say that Christ was begotten before all ages. As I explained in the last episode, I don't think that's really different than eternal generation. It's just putting it differently. In other words, before all ages is a way of referring to timeless eternity. In this letter, Eusebius goes on to say that the council just modified his statement, notably adding that Father and Son are one Usia, and that resulted in the Nicene Creed. It's not clear that this is true. We don't really know how the meeting went down, what the proceedings were. We don't have any of those kind of documents. We just have Eusebius's attempt to kind of explain himself and defend himself. And then we have Athanasius's very polemical description later on, decades later. But it's possible that it could have happened that way, that they could have started with Eusebius's document and then expanded it up into true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, etc. How does he defend himself for having signed this? Because remember, originally he was on Arius' side, and he was of the more conservative party that was not entirely comfortable with this language, as became clear later on. He says, On their suggesting this formula, we did not let it pass without inquiry in what sense they used the expressions of the substance of the Father and consubstantial with the Father. And in his explanation, by saying that they're one substance, they just mean that he was from the Father, like he exists because of the Father, but not as a part of him. And he said, well, if that's what they mean, then I'm for that. He says, on this account, we assented to the meaning ourselves, without declining even the term consubstantial, peace being the aim which we set before us, and fear of deviating from the correct meaning. In the same way, we also admitted, begotten, not made, since they said made was an appellation common to the other creatures which came to be through the Son, to whom the Son had no likeness. So remember, it had been traditional, and Origen had done this to describe the Son of God as a creature, or to say that he was made, and so Eusebius was part of that tradition, but he understood them to be saying that made was a technical term that could only be applied to the things in the creation that came through the Son, and so if that's what made means, then he will agree that Christ is begotten, not made. Because made means made like all the other things. He says a bit more about consubstantial with the Father. He says this phrase suggests that the Son of God bears no resemblance to the originated creatures, but that to his Father alone who begat him is he in every way assimilated, and that he is not of any other hypostasis and substance but from the Father. To this term also, thus interpreted, it appeared well to assent. He then explains why he accepts the anathemas, and uh, he gets a little weaselly there, but I won't go into that. 
The bottom line is that Eusebius did appease the mainstream to accept him as Orthodox, and so he did officially sign on to Nicaea and was not thereafter an enthusiastic supporter of a lot of its language, but he did manage to save his career. You have to remember, he was in his 60s at this time. He was an old man and really not interested in rocking the boat or going to war over this new language. He's more concerned with peace and getting along than with theological precision. Still, despite this, he's basically been remembered by history as, quote, an Aryan, which is unfair, or as a, quote, semi-Aryan, which may or may not be fair to paint what you mean by that. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I'll discuss a recent attempt to rehabilitate him as a perfectly orthodox Trinitarian of his day. In this segment, I'm going to talk about a discussion of Eusebius in a book by a scholar named Dr. Christopher Beely. His book is called The Unity of Christ, Continuity and Conflict in Patristic Tradition. I've been reading through it, and I do think it's a really valuable book. Beely is a careful scholar who is very fair and extremely knowledgeable, and he does a very nice job of summarizing massive amounts of literature and giving some kind of sensible evaluation of it. Dr. Beely is an Episcopal priest and a professor of Anglican Studies and Patristics at the Yale Divinity School. In his discussion of Eusebius, he decides he's going to push back against this unfair write-off of Eusebius as just an Arian. And this is a trend in recent scholarship. You see, the Catholic tradition could be really vicious to people's reputations. People like Tertullian and Origen were leading defenders of the Catholic cause in their day. But when the theology had evolved in a certain direction, a couple hundred years later, people found things they didn't like, and they started kind of posthumously excommunicating and damning them. And if you think about it, this is kind of vicious and unfair. You can only judge somebody by the standards that were available to them in their day, right? A lot of recent work has discussed Arius far more sympathetically than ever was done historically, and said that Arius was basically a conservative in the camp near where a lot of people were thinking in his day. He wasn't a rationalist. He wasn't, you know, crazy way out of bounds somewhere. He was just in a pretty common line of thinking in his time. I think that's true. Dr. Beely seems like he wants to really rehabilitate Eusebius and make him be accepted as a perfectly good Trinitarian who believes in the deity of Christ and all the things that we now think are important, or nearly so. And he quite rightly points out that the misunderstanding of Eusebius began in his lifetime and was started by Marcellus and by Athanasius. One thing that Beely strongly emphasizes is that Eusebius proclaims Christ to be God. Now there's a translation problem here. When he says that Christ is God and a human being, the Greek will be theon kai anthropon. Kai anthropon is and a human being. There's no uh, there's no indefinite article in Greek. You just supply it when there's not a definite article, a the. So kai, anthropon, literally, and man, you translate that as and a human being, or and a man. But the first part is that Christ is theon, that he's a god. Beely follows the tradition, which goes, I guess, all the way back in mainstream Catholic English translating, he follows the tradition of whenever he sees the word Theos to translate it as capital G-O-D. And this makes it sound like either Eusebius is identifying the Son with the one God, which is obviously incorrect, as you'll see, or that he's saying that he is God in a sense which would be fully acceptable to orthodoxy today. And whether he's doing that is a matter of dispute. Beely wants to make him a good Trinitarian, but unfortunately, he doesn't distinguish between the singular referring term, capital T, Trinity, and the plural referring term, small t, Trinity. Sometimes the word Trinity 
trinitas, trios in Greek. Sometimes that can just be a plural referring expression, referring to God, his son, and his spirit, whatever those are and however they're related. It refers to the three of them. But later in Christian tradition, particularly starting around the time of Augustine, people talk about the Trinity, with a capital T, as God. The Trinity is a singular referring term there. It refers to the one God. And that God is understood to be tripersonal. Now Eusebius, just as you would expect in this time, does definitely believe in a small t trinity. He believes in God, in the Son of God, and the Spirit of God, in much the way that Origen did. But he doesn't believe in a triune God, and he never refers to a triune God. So to call him a Trinitarian, I think, is just misleading. Now, Bealey will note repeatedly passages where he identifies the one God as the Father. This is a constant drumbeat in his works. That's how he defends his theology as monotheistic. The only God there, in the most proper sense, in the ultimate sense of God, is the Father, the one who is autotheos, divine through himself. So the one God is the Father. Christ is not the Father, or the Eternal Son is not the Father. And yet, Christ is, quote, theos, a God, or God. Right, but by identifying the one God with the Father alone, that makes Eusebius a Unitarian, not a Trinitarian, because he doesn't think that the Trinity is the one God. But these ideas seem to have disappeared from contemporary theology, so Bealey never describes him that way. In my view, Bealey kind of massages Eusebius' description of the Son as a mediator, as an in-between, between the Creator and the creation. He says... Eusebius does not, in fact, describe the Son in terms of ontological or divine mediation in any of his works. He does not espouse a philosophical scheme of ontological mediation. The Son's ability to manifest himself to creatures is not a matter of his being less divine than the Father, like a kind of buffer or way station along the scale of being. What Eusebius does say is that, for some unknown reason of the word's identity, he is uniquely able to reveal the Father and to appear in creaturely ways, without being any less divine than the Father. He puts that last part in italics. Now, he doesn't exactly say that, and you'll hear in the excerpt that I'm going to read you later from Eusebius that he does have in the back of his mind this platonic scheme where there's this ultra-transcendent God, and he just is, because of his super-duper transcendence, unable to interact with creation, and so he needs a go-between, he needs a mediator, which is neither created nor uncreated, to directly do the creating for him. Not only does he say similar ideas, but he even refers to the Platonic philosophy in that context. Is he less divine? Well, when you get your divinity from somebody else, you don't exist se. you don't exist independently. You're not the ultimate source. Now, to just insist that that doesn't make you less divine, I think, is kind of a Nicene bias, a kind of a Nicene blind spot. If being divine is being an absolutely perfect being, then if you lack aseity, you're not quite an absolutely perfect being, even if you're all-knowing, all-powerful, and completely good. Still, he's right to say that, in Eusebius's view, the Son and the Holy Spirit are divine. They get their divinity from the Father, so in a sense, there's only one divinity there, like in the sense of a universal a property that can be shared. Of course, consistent with all this, the Father is the only true God. Bealey describes Eusebius' theology as, quote, structurally Trinitarian, end quote. Well, but it's not Trinitarian at all. It's Unitarian. There's no tripersonal God there. There is a God who manages to make, in some sense, divine to others. In sum, Bealey is absolutely correct that Eusebius was within the bounds of orthodoxy in his day. But those bounds did not require that you were a Trinitarian, or that you said the Son was God in the same sense that the Father was God, that the Son wasn't in any way lesser. He was at least lesser in that he didn't have his divinity through himself, but he got it from someone else. But again, it's a really valuable book, and I appreciate his careful exposition, and I've learned a lot from it. And one of the interesting things about it, and uh, this is something that really bothers me, is that one of the charges that people had against Origen is that he taught two Christs. 
And this is a fairly serious charge because Christ seems to be one. There's just one Son of God, one Messiah, one Jesus, right? There shouldn't be two of them. But Origen taught, and if you look very carefully in some of his works, as expounded by Dr. Beely, Eusebius also taught that the, quote, human nature that the eternal Son, the Word, assumed, that human nature was a man. It was a person. Beely says this. He's commenting on Eusebius' book called Theophany. He says, In discussing Christ's sacrifice, Eusebius is careful to distinguish between the human sacrifice of Christ's body and the word and power of God, who is the great high priest who performs the sacrifice, even apart from the incarnation, much as Origen had done. The difference is signified by the two names, Jesus, which refers to the sacrifice of salvation, and Christ, which refers to the pre-existent high priest. Now, he just talked about the sacrifice of Christ's body, and that's what Eusebius does. He frequently will put it in terms of the word taking on a body. However, he thinks that what the word took on is a kind of thing that can suffer. And as Bealey makes clear, he does think that there is a human soul there, and the human body and a human soul together make a human person. That's what he's calling Jesus. He's distinguishing Jesus from the Christ. In doing this, he's just being an originist because Origen made that distinction too. And what Origen does is he then confuses the issue by describing the features of one as features of the other. So Origen will say that the eternal immortal son died, even though that's not strictly speaking true. It was the man who died. And he'll say that the man eternally existed, although that's not strictly speaking true. It was really the word. So this, I think, is a huge problem in Christology, but I'm not going to pursue it further here. When the Trinity's podcast returns, you'll hear part of a speech from Eusebius that he gave when he was in his 70s, and you can see how he describes God and Christ. this last segment, I'm going to present to you a part of a book that's called In Praise of the Emperor Constantine. This is really two different speeches that Eusebius gave that he's put together and made into one book. The first was a speech he gave at the 30th anniversary celebration for Constantine's reign at his palace in Constantinople. And the second speech was at the dedication of the new church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Both events happened in the year 335. So this is part of his mature thinking about God and Christ. And I'm going to present it to you because I think it'll give you a sense of the man. And I think it reveals some interesting and very problematic things about his views. So I'm going to start in chapter 11 of that book, which is the first chapter of the speech at the dedication of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I'm going to omit some parts just for the sake of time. I propose to teach all men what all should know who care to understand the principles on which our Savior God employs his power, the reasons for which he who was the pre-existent controller of all things at last descended to us from heaven, the reasons for which he assumed our nature and submitted even to the power of death. I shall declare the causes of that immortal life which followed and of his resurrection from the dead. Once more I shall adduce convincing proofs and arguments for the sake of those who yet need such testimony. And now let me commence my appointed task. Those who transfer the worship due to that God who formed and rules the world to the works of his hand, who hold the sun and moon or other parts of this material system, nay, the elements themselves, earth, water, air, and fire, in equal honor with the creator of them all, who give that name of gods to things which never would have had existence, or even the name except as obedient to that word of God who made the world, such persons, in my judgment, resemble those who overlook the master hand which gives its magnificence to a royal palace, and, while lost in wonder at its roofs and walls, the paintings of varied beauty and coloring which adorn them, 
and its gilded ceilings and sculptures, ascribe to them the praise of that skill which belongs to the artist whose work they are. Whereas they should assign the cause of their wonder, not to these visible objects, but to the architect himself, and confess that the proofs of skill are indeed manifest, but that he alone is the possessor of that skill who has made them what they are. Again, well might we liken those two children who should admire the seven-stringed lyre and disregard him who invented or has power to use it. Not less absurd is it for those who regard this universe with the natural eye to ascribe its origin to the sun or moon or any other heavenly body. Rather, let them confess that these are themselves the works of a higher wisdom. Remember the maker and framer of them all and render to him the praise and honor above all created objects. Inspired by the sight of these objects, let them address themselves with full purpose of heart to glorify and worship him who is now invisible to mortal eye, but perceived by the clear and unclouded vision of the soul, the supremely sovereign word of God, who has molded and arranged it all, who is the only begotten Son of God, and whom the maker of all things, who far transcends all being, has begotten of himself and appointed Lord and Governor of this universe. For since it was impossible that perishable bodies or the rational spirits which he had created should approach the supreme God by reason of their immeasurable distance from his perfections, for he is unbegotten, above and beyond all creation, ineffable, inaccessible, unapproachable, dwelling, as his holy word assures us, in the light which none can enter. But they were created from nothing and are infinitely far removed from his unbegotten essence." Well has the all-gracious and almighty God interposed, as it were, an intermediate power between himself and them, even the divine omnipotence of his only begotten word. And this power, which is in perfect nearness and intimacy of union with the Father which abides in him and shares his secret counsels, has yet condescended in fullness of grace, as it were, to conform itself to those who are so far removed from the supreme majesty of God. How else, consistently with his own holiness, could he who is far above and beyond all things unite himself to corrupt and bodily nature? Accordingly, the divine word, thus connecting himself with this universe and receiving into his hands the reins, as it were, of the world, turns and directs it as a skillful charioteer according to his own will and pleasure. The proof of these assertions is evident. For supposing that those component parts of the world are self-existent, which we call elements, earth, water, air, and fire, the nature of which is manifestly without intelligence, and if they had one common essence, which those who are skilled in natural science called the great receptacle, mother and nurse of all things, and if this itself be utterly devoid of shape and figure, of soul and reason, from where shall we say it has obtained its present form and beauty? To what shall we ascribe the distinction of the elements, or the union of things contrary in their very nature, who has commanded the liquid waters to sustain the heavy element of earth? Who has turned back the waters from their downward course and carried them aloft in clouds? Who has bound the force of fire and caused it to lie latent in wood and to combine with substances most contrary to itself? Who has mingled the cold air with heat, thus reconciled the enmity of opposing principles? Who has devised the continuous succession of the human race and given, as it were, an endless term of duration, who has molded the male and female form, adapted their mutual relations with perfect harmony, and given one common principle of production to every living creature? Who changes the character of the fluid and corruptible seed, which in itself is void of reason, and gives it its prolific power? Who at this moment is working these and ten thousand effects more wonderful than these, nay, surpassing all wonder, and with invisible influences daily and hourly perpetuating the production of them all, Surely the wonder-working and truly omnipotent word of God may be deemed the efficient cause of all these things, that word who, diffusing himself through all creation, pervading height and depth with incorporeal energy, and embracing the length and breadth of the universe within his mighty grasp, has compacted and reduced to order this entire system, from whose unreasoned and formless matter he has framed for himself an instrument of perfect harmony, the nicely balanced chords and notes of which he touches with all-wise and unerring skill. He it is who governs the sun and moon and the other luminaries of heaven by inexplicable laws and directs their motion for the service of the universal whole. It is this word of God who has stooped to the earth on which we live and created the manifold species of animals and the fair varieties of the vegetable world. It is this same word who has penetrated the recesses of the deep 
has given their being to the finny race and produced the countless forms of life which there exist. It is he who fashions the burden of the womb and informs it in nature's laboratory with the principle of life. By him the fluid and heavy moisture is raised on high and then sweetened by a purifying change descends in measured quantities to the earth and at stated seasons in most profuse supply. Like a skillful farmer he fully irrigates the land, tempers the moist and dry in just proportion, diversifying the whole with brilliant flowers, with aspects of varied beauty, with pleasant fragrance, with alternating varieties of fruits, and countless gratifications for the taste of men. But why do I attempt this hopeless task to recount the mighty works of the Word of God and describe an energy which surpasses mortal thought? By some, indeed, he has been termed the nature of the universe, by others the world soul, by others fate. Others again have declared him to be the Most High God himself, strangely confounding things most widely different, bringing down to this earth, uniting to a corruptible and material body, and assigning to that supreme and unbegotten power who is Lord of all an intermediate place between irrational animals and rational mortals on the one hand and immortal beings on the other. On the other hand, the sacred doctrine teaches that he who is the supreme source of good and cause of all things is beyond all comprehension, therefore inexpressible by word or speech or name, surpassing the power not of language only, but of thought itself, uncircumscribed by place or body, neither in heaven nor in ethereal space, nor in any other part of the universe, but entirely independent of all things else, he pervades the depths of unexplored and secret wisdom. The sacred oracles teach us to acknowledge him as the only true God, apart from all bodily being, distinct from all subordinate ministration, which is why it is said that all things are from him, but not through him. And he himself dwelling as sovereign in secret and undiscovered regions of unapproachable light ordains and disposes all things by the single power of his own will. At his will, whatever is, exists. Without that will, it cannot be. And his will is in every case for good, since he is essentially goodness itself. But he through whom are all things, even God the Word, proceeding in an ineffable manner from the Father above, as from an everlasting and exhaustless fountain, flows onward like a river with a full and abundant stream of power for the preservation of the universal whole. Thus being the perfect offspring of a perfect Father, and the common preserver of all things, he diffuses himself with living power throughout creation, and pours from his own fullness abundant supplies of reason, wisdom, light, and every other blessing, not only on objects nearest to himself, but on those most remote, whether in earth or sea, or any other sphere of being. To all of these he appoints with perfect equity their limits, places, laws, and inheritance, allotting to each their suited portion according to his sovereign will. Thus, universal is the agency of the word of God, everywhere present and pervading all things by the power of his intelligence, he looks upward to the Father and governs this lower creation, inferior and consequent upon himself, in accordance with his will as the common preserver of all things, intermediate as it were, and attracting the created to the uncreated essence, this word of God exists as an unbroken bond between the two, uniting things most widely different by an inseparable tie. He is the providence which rules the universe, the guardian and director of the whole. He is the power and wisdom of God, the only begotten God, the word begotten of God himself. Simple, indivisible, uncompounded, the divine nature exists at an infinite elevation above the visible constitution of this world, and hence we are assured by the clear testimony of the sacred herald that the word of God, who is before all things, must be the sole preserver of all intelligent beings, while God, who is above all, and the author of the generation of the word, being himself the cause of all things, is rightly called the father of the word, as of his only begotten son, himself acknowledging no superior cause. God, therefore, himself is one, and from him proceeds the one only begotten word, the omnipresent preserver of all things. To finish up this episode, I just want to make a few observations about all of this. First, as I said before, it is, strictly speaking, Unitarian, because the one God just is the Father himself. But the centrality and prominence of the Word, this eternally generated Son, is really striking. First, 
Notice that he's nearly eclipsed the man Jesus. Eusebius does later describe the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the earthly ministry and teachings of Jesus are pushed far into the background. He leads with all this stuff about the cosmic logos and its functions. This eternal word, this generated God, has vacuumed up a whole bunch of functions which the Bible seems to straightforwardly give to God. So it's not God, but it's this other generated God who created the world, who sustains the world, who is provident in the world. God, the one true God, has been kicked upstairs. He's not everywhere, but rather nowhere. He's too separate, too holy, too transcendent to do anything himself regarding the cosmos. The one job, the one function he has left is just timelessly giving existence to this active other God. The one true God needs this intermediary agent to deal with the cosmos for him. And this derived God is omnipotent and is present and active everywhere. In the background here, clearly, is the cosmological myth of Plato's dialogue called the Timaeus, and then the countless Middle Platonic speculations that were based on it. These proclaim that the ultimate source emanated out a divine craftsman, who, as neither created nor uncreated, could serve as an intermediary. This craftsman looks up to the realm of forms, maybe those are God's thoughts, and he puts those forms into the receptacle. This is an eternally existing, entirely formless matter. And when he puts the forms into that receptacle, that's where you get our cosmos. As God is kind of like a platonic form of the good on which all things depend and from which all things derive their degrees of goodness and reality, Eusebius thinks, like Origen, that the logos, the generated word, is like a form of rationality, a universal property of being reasonable on which all rational beings participate to some degree. And so if Plato got a lot of things right, well, he did, but that's just because he was metaphysically participating in the Logos. He had a high degree of rationality. And if you don't get that he's relying on Greek philosophical speculations here, Eusebius helpfully opines that others have called this Logos the world soul, the nature of the world or fate. Those others being, of course, Greek philosophers, Platonists, and Stoics. Let me be clear about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Eusebius is primarily a philosopher or that philosophy is the main thing he's interested in or that uh, he's really philosophizing here. He's primarily a theologian. He thinks he's just expounding the Bible. And I think probably most of the philosophy he learned, he learned just by reading Origen. However, while he says it's a big mistake to think that the Word is the Most High God himself, he doesn't think it's a big mistake to refer to the Word as the nature of the universe, the world, soul, or fate. He's not saying those things, but he does think that these ancient philosophers were in touch with the reality of the Logos. He thinks they were seeing through a glass darkly. So it is clear that he is buying into this Platonic cosmology. To him, this is just kind of like background scientific knowledge that can be assumed and doesn't really need to be argued for. It just has enough prestige that you could just rely on it. He believes in this receptacle, this bizarre idea of utterly, completely featureless matter that gets forms, platonic forms, put into it. And he does seem to be assuming the old Greek point that it's metaphysically impossible for the one true God to directly do things in his creation. Well, that's a pretty weird view of omnipotence, if you ask me. So the one true God here, as ineffable, you know, no concept applies to it, as utterly simple, unnameable, unknowable, timelessly unchangeable, this, quote, one true God starts to look a lot less like our Father in heaven and more like an impersonal ultimate, as in many other religions and philosophies. But Eusebius pulls back from the brink. He does ascribe will to this ultimate source and seemingly power and wisdom. And sometimes, following biblical habit, he slips up and calls God the creator. But of course, in Eusebius' view, God does no such thing. It's the Son who creates, sustains, and governs. And it's the Son who interacts in any way with people. Whatever is attributed to God in the Old Testament 
you know, appearing in human form, giving the law, speaking, being seen by Moses. That's really, of course, the son. Now, if the son does all that, you can see why there's a logical pressure, as it were, to move the son into the being of the one God so that those functions are restored to God and not carried out by another being, even if that being is his image and shares his divinity. That step, though, making the Son be something that's within the God, like a person within the one God, that step was never taken by Eusebius. That was for future generations. Eusebius died in 340, just as the partisans of the Nicene Creed were really getting going in their polemical war of words against, quote, Arianism. As we heard in our last episode, as of 344, there was still some stiff resistance to Nicaea's new language, and a broad coalition was insisting on the traditional uniqueness of the Father as the one true God, a being who is understood as a different being than the Son, who is also greater than the Son, even though the Son is divine and can be called God or a God. Next week, we'll go a little bit farther through the history. We'll hear about the first Sermian Creed of the year 351. This week's thinking music has been River Meditation by Jason Shaw. As always, at the blog post for this episode, there's a link where you can download or listen to this entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com groups trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.